1986, a mother and daughter returned home and were never seen again. In 1993, a mother and daughter walked to the store and were never seen again. This week's episode will cover two baffling mother-daughter disappearances, the case of Sherry and Jonna Reisinger and the case of Dorothy and Danielle Pitcher. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and for the first time in this show's history, I'm by myself. We'll see how this goes as a solo host, but I'm kind of interested in trying it out, though I'm not exactly sure what I say right now. Do I talk about the weather? I'm not sure. So let's go ahead and jump into the first case for today, Sherry and Jonna Reisinger. This case really interested me since it's from a town about an hour away from me, But it's a really puzzling case that didn't get nearly the attention from the media that you would expect. Locally, it's really well known. But once you get outside of the media area, even where I am, it's definitely a lesser known case. This story takes place in 1986. Ronald and Sherry Reisinger were a married couple living in Richmond, Missouri, which is a town of less than 6,000 people. They had three daughters, Christy, Leandria, and Jonna. Now, Jonna was the youngest of the three at 16 years old. Ronald had grown up in Richmond, but Sherry was from a small town somewhat nearby called Hardin. And when I'm saying small, I mean like 600 people. In the 1970s and 80s, the local papers used to publish really anything that happened in the small town, including which neighbors called on who. So when I did an archive search on the family names to see what media reporting was happening at the time, I actually just found a lot of entries of Sherry and her daughters visiting with friends, neighbors, family, even visiting Sherry's foster parents, Johnny Lee and Thelma Godsey. But when it gets to 1986, there is really nothing about the family after a small blurb about Sherry having visited with someone in early June. But 1986 was a year that was marked by much bigger events than who they had coffee with. We know that the family had begun receiving letters that were described at the time as threatening, and this would have happened in January and February of 1986. Those close to the family, including extended relatives and other friends, they also began experiencing things like vandalism. Their car tires were being deflated and windows were being smashed. This had to have been really disturbing to everyone in this tight-knit community, but at first, it seemed like it was just the work of some local vandals, maybe some teenagers who needed a hobby, but it didn't necessarily seem targeted at just the Reisinger family. This behavior continued until the FBI stepped in. There was concern the behavior was part of an extortion or a racketeering scheme. There's no confirmation that any evidence was found of this, But the person or persons doing this definitely were deterred by the presence of the FBI, and the vandalism and the letter stopped. So by June 6th, 1986, things had definitely seemed to have calmed down for the family and the community. Sherry, who was 40 at the time, spent her evening playing cards with some friends. Christy and Leandria were out of town on pre-planned trips, and Jonna was out on a date. I haven't found any reports of where Ronald was, so he may have just been home by himself for most of the evening. It's unclear what time Sherry had gotten home, but John was dropped off at home before her curfew and was seen walking into the house. So this is the last time anyone would see her again, and it was around midnight. 
Though Sherry and Jana both had jobs and regularly spent time with friends, no one reported them missing for three months. Ronald moved on with his life without his wife and daughter, never reporting them missing or attempting, as far as I can tell, to find them. He told everyone that Sherry had left him, taking Jonna with her. In September, though, one of Ronald's brothers grew concerned that no one had heard from either of them. So even if Sherry had left Ronald, he felt that she would have contacted her other daughters or her friends. So he went to the police to file the missing persons report on both Sherry and Jonna. Whether this was with Ronald's knowledge or not, I don't know. The police went to the family home where Ronald told them largely the same story he had been telling everyone else, that Sherry had been cheating on him, she had taken Jana and left with her wealthy boyfriend, who was a veterinarian. He even gave the police the name of the man. Unfortunately, this doesn't appear to have been followed up on for years, because when it was checked out years later, they found that there was no veterinarian with the name Ronald provided. And you would have thought that would have been a big red flag at the time had they followed up on it. In looking around the house, it was determined the women took nothing with them. They had left all of their clothes behind, and they both had paychecks they hadn't cashed before leaving. Yet it seems authorities believed Ronald. He filed for divorce that same year, and since Sherry had Jonna, he was actually ordered to pay child support, which he did pay. The child support went into an account, but Sherry never attempted to claim it. Even though no one reported Sherry and Jonna missing, the story that she had run off didn't really sit well with the neighbors because they didn't really believe that she would have done that. So there were rumors going around town that the women had been murdered by Ronald and buried under a concrete slab in the family's basement. And it seems no one is sure about that slab at all. One rumor is that it couldn't have been related since it was poured before they went missing. One rumor is that it was poured around the time the women went missing, so it could be related. But then police dug it up and found nothing. But then there's another that it was poured before, but it had to be redone due to cracks. So maybe they were under it and then moved during the repairs. And that's why the police couldn't find them. I mean, there's a lot of rumors going around on what might have happened. But the truth is no one reported them missing for three months. So no matter who was responsible, they could be anywhere. And if it was Ronald, he had time to hide them somewhere that wouldn't link right back to him like his own basement. The investigation grew cold almost as soon as it started. It would be 10 years before authorities started talking as though they even suspected foul play in this case, though the case stood at a standstill for 13 more years. In the meantime, Ronald remarried and moved to Arkansas. It was early 2009 when investigators began taking another look at this case. So this is nearly 23 years since the women had gone missing. Memories were definitely fading. People were passing away and there was a lack of evidence. There was no crime scene and there were no bodies. So over the course of four months in 2009, a case was built against Ronald and investigators felt it was a strong one, particularly because they had a witness of some sort. But no body murder trials are difficult. It's an uphill battle when you cannot even prove a death happened, let alone how it happened. But they brought the evidence to a grand jury who voted to indict Ronald. On May 28th, which would have been Jonna's 39th birthday, authorities arrested Ronald, who was then 67 years old, for the first-degree murders of his wife and his daughter. He waived extradition and was moved to Missouri to face the charges. He pled not guilty. A month after his arrest, the old family home was searched with canines. While the state felt they had a strong case against Ronald, they were hoping to find more evidence. We don't know what evidence the state had against Ronald at this point because the case never went to trial. 
After a change of venue and there were a few delays, the state ultimately dropped their case with the sudden and unexpected death of this key witness who's been referred to. They have not said who this witness was or what they knew. My best guess going in was that perhaps Ronald's brother who reported the women missing had more information, but... I did some digging and I found the names of his brothers and then found their death dates and neither fit. One died years before Ronald's arrest and the other died years after. My other thought was possibly one of Ronald and Sherry's other daughters, but they're both still alive. So whatever this witness could provide must have been big since the case had to be dismissed entirely when this person died. And the theories in this case are pretty simple. Either Ronald did it or someone else did it. There's no chance. The women would have gone this long without contacting family if they could have. In 2012, the court agreed that they were likely deceased. The women were declared dead after Sherry's surviving daughters petitioned the court. The police have not released their evidence against Ronald, and they didn't have a probable cause filing for his arrest since it was a grand jury indictment. So we don't have any source of this information. Our only hope to know what they had was a trial, which didn't happen, and they didn't announce anything else in the media. We don't even know the theory of the crime or the motive the prosecutors would have put forward. All we know is that there was a witness to something. We don't know what. And the circumstances are suspicious. Ronald's wife and daughter ran off with a man who doesn't exist, and Ronald didn't do anything. He didn't pursue custody or file against Sherry for taking his daughter and denying him his parenting time. He didn't go to the police about his wife essentially kidnapping his daughter and giving him no contact information. Instead, his brother's the one who had to get concerned enough three months later to report them missing. But we do have to go back to those odd happenings from earlier in the year the car vandalism, and the threatening letters. Is it possible that the person behind those is the same person or persons behind Sherry and Jana's disappearance? Ronald must not have been that concerned that this was the case since he didn't appear to make the connection himself and didn't report them missing, but it is possible he didn't have anything to do with their disappearance. Maybe there was an extortion scheme and he was the target. So out of fear for his own life or maybe that of his other daughters, he decided not to report them missing. So even though charges have been dropped against Ronald, investigators still follow leads as they come in. Maybe justice will be done one day, but time is ticking. If Ronald was responsible, he's about to turn 77 years old. We've already seen one witness die before this could go to trial, so it's really possible the case will die when Ronald does. But for the sake of the surviving family members, Finding the women's remains and burying them may not be justice, but it would be a step in the right direction for the families. At the time of her disappearance, Sherry Reisiger was 5'3 and 180 pounds. She would be 73 years old today. She had brown hair, brown or hazel eyes. Jana was 16 years old. She would be 48 years old today. She was 5'6 and 145 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She had blonde hair and green eyes. Anyone with any information can call the Richmond Police Department at 816-776-5826. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. I've been a freelance graphic designer for about four years now. And when you become a freelancer, you learn very quickly that you have to represent your work online. There's no better way to show potential clients what you can do than through your own website, which is why I use Squarespace. They make it really easy to create a beautiful online portfolio with their customizable templates and settings. My website lets people contact me directly, which gives me peace of mind knowing that no one's questions or proposals are slipping through the cracks. 
Plus, Squarespace sites look great on every device, which is helpful if I want to pull up my work on my phone for a potential new client. Check it out at squarespace.com freelance for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code freelance to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com freelance and use offer code freelance. The next case I'm talking about tonight is the disappearance of Dorothy Pitcher, age 47, and her 14-year-old daughter, Danielle. This case came up in one of our early episodes just in passing, and we got a bunch of feedback saying, can you cover this case in depth? So I figured it was a great one to start wrapping the show up with. So some background on the family to get started. Dorothy and John Pitcher married in the mid-1960s when Dorothy was about 20 or 21. John was a few years older, and he already had two children from a previous marriage. So together, they would go on to have 12 more children during their 27-year marriage. In 1993, the family was living in the small town of Sunazona, Arizona, located about an hour and a half east of Tucson. It's a tiny town of about 200 people. But more than just having a small population, it's really spread out. The family lived on a trailer near the elementary school, which gave me in my head a picture of a neighborhood. But no, I did a Google map search on this area, and it's not. It's a few homes spread pretty far apart. It's an area known more for sprawling ranches than neighborhoods. John Pitcher had a disability due to back issues, so the family lived off his part-time income, working security at the local school, and his disability payments. Dorothy did not work. In 1993, six of the 14 children were still living at home, and they spanned ages 7 to 15. The grown children were split between living in the same area and others living back east where the family was from. May 23, 1993, which was the day Dorothy and Danielle disappeared, was a Sunday, and the kids who were still living at home had gone to church that morning. John and Dorothy did not. John reported that the morning was pretty normal. He and Dorothy had a quiet house with all the kids gone, and they simply enjoyed the momentary silence. When the kids came back from church, Dorothy decided to take a walk to the corner store. Corner store was nearly four miles away, so it was a solid hour walk there and an hour back. The store was an RV park, so it was often referred to as the RV store or the park store, but the name at the time was the A&M Market. This long walk wasn't out of character for Dorothy. She was a 47-year-old mom of a large family, so going for a nice long walk was great exercise, and she would often take one of the children with her. So anyone with more than one child knows how hard it can be to find that one-on-one time with your kids, and definitely harder with six kids in the home. So this was a great chance for her to connect with her kids individually. This day, she asked Danielle to go with her, and Danielle was 14. She was described as energetic and outgoing, which was actually a contrast to Dorothy, who was described as soft-spoken and the type to go with the not really make any waves. So they left the house with money for the store, but not much else. Dorothy didn't take her purse or even her ID with her. The plan was to buy cigarettes for John, and whichever kid went on these walks with Dorothy often would be allowed to pick out a treat at the store as well. John and the other five kids were going to stay at home and get Sunday dinner going. So the pair left at 1 p.m. and first stopped at the house of one of the older daughters. Dorothy wanted to see if she wanted to go on that walk with them to the store. Now, 
she didn't, but she asked them to stop on their way back. She would walk with them from her home to the family home and join them for dinner. So Dorothy and Danielle continued on their way. At the store, they bought cigarettes and ice cream cones. Dorothy used the payphone while there, though I haven't seen it reported who she called or why. The family did not have a home phone, so it was probably just a routine call that she wanted to place while she had the convenience of a phone. Dorothy and Danielle then headed home. They were seen by neighbors driving past them around 3 p.m. They were at what was called the S-curve, and it's just like it sounds. The road curves to the right, and then a short distance later, it curves to the left. This would have been about halfway on their journey home. Later that evening, the daughter whose house they had stopped on on the way to the store showed up at Dorothy and John's house for dinner. Now, her assumption was that Dorothy and Danielle must have forgotten to stop on their way home. But when she got there, John told her they actually hadn't even gotten back yet. Now, this was odd because she would have expected them back. So she went back to the store and retraced their path. Because of how remote this is, there really aren't a lot of paths to get from their house to the store. There are a few side streets, maybe, but not a wildly different path. And she couldn't find them along any of those roads. When she got back, they started calling family and friends in the event that they had either called someone or had stopped in and were still there. No one had heard from them or seen them except for that couple who saw them along the S-curve. They didn't stop to offer them a ride since Dorothy's habit of walking several miles for exercise was common knowledge. John did not call to report them missing until 6 a.m. the next morning. He gave some reasons like how they didn't have a phone at home and he thought maybe Dorothy and Danielle had stayed at the home of one of the grown kids. Now this doesn't really make sense. We know they called around to friends and family so they had access to a phone somewhere whether it was a neighbor's house or another family member's home and they called family. So if they were at someone else's house he probably would have known. So this raised some red flags but there was a second thing that drew suspicion to John. When police did respond to his call the next day, he first said they walked because the car was broken down. But then he told a different police officer that the car was fine and they walked because they wanted to. So the investigators did consider John a suspect or person of interest in the disappearance early on. And to some degree, they focused on him. John was given a polygraph that he passed. Additional searches of the home showed no evidence anything had happened to Dorothy or Danielle at the home, and they were both seen at the store and walking home. No one reported seeing John or the family vehicle having left the home while Dorothy and Danielle were gone. So the explanations for his inconsistent stories about the car breaking down, the lead investigator essentially told the media that John was distraught. He was confused. He was panicky. So taking his emotional state into account, the investigators didn't consider this changing statement about the car being terribly significant. They never did address in the media the issue with the delay in John reporting them missing. It's possible John did think she stayed over somewhere, but maybe not a family member. It would later be reported that Dorothy did have an affair with a man named named Larry at some point. Now, Larry did not live in Arizona anymore. He had moved back to Michigan about a year before the disappearance. From the way things are phrased in the reporting, it sounds like the affair ended with his move. So it was a fairly recent relationship. It's just conjecture, but I can see if a marriage had just gone through an affair, John may not have been immediately alarmed when she didn't come home right away. I mean, he wasn't pleased, I'm sure, but not necessarily alarmed as in worrying that she had been abducted. He may have been worried she was staying out with a boyfriend, and that would be a family matter, not something you call the police over. In the wake of an affair, there's always trust that needs to be rebuilt, and it had just been a year, maybe that trust wasn't back. 
But in the end, John was cleared as a suspect fairly early on. But even as investigators wanted to know what happened, there was an urgent matter of finding Dorothy and Danielle. So the police did respond with a full search. The area is vast, but it's desert. There's not a lot in that immediate area blocking an aerial view. There aren't tall trees or dense forest. It's largely scrub brush or completely cleared land for ranching. So a helicopter flew over the area with great visibility, but saw nothing. The family home was searched, and the idea that they were staying away voluntarily started looking less and less likely. They found out how much Dorothy had left behind. Dorothy had dentures and glasses, and she left both of them at home for the walk to the store. She also left behind her purse, any money above what she took to the store, and even her driver's license. And now Danielle appeared to have just left with the clothes on her back. So every indication was that Dorothy and Danielle left the home for this walk and planned to be home two hours later. This week's new podcast alert for those who are looking for a show to replace the time insights taking up in your week. I have one for you. It's called Hostage. Behind every hostage situation, there's a complex dynamic between the hostage, the captor, and the negotiator. If someone says the wrong thing or makes the wrong move, there's a life that is in jeopardy. So every Thursday, the Parcast Network has this podcast called Hostage, and it's telling these stories behind some of the most intense hostage situations and the people inside them. They look at the psychological tactics used in hostage negotiations and also what the human brain does when someone is being held captive. How does that work on their side? They're going to look at those moments where things took a turn, whether they went really wrong or they went really right and lives were saved. So make sure you catch the two-part episode on Captain Phillips of the MV Maersk, Alabama. You can check out how it all began with the three-part episode on the Hearst kidnapping. So you can search for and subscribe to Hostage wherever you're listening to Insight Now. Also rate and review it because that always helps podcasts and I appreciate everyone who's done that for us. Tracking dogs were used in the early search, and they tracked the women to Dorothy's daughter's house and to the store and then back along the S-curve. And this is actually something I don't completely understand. If they took the same path there and the same path back, could the tracking dogs actually tell that they turned around and left two scent tracks? Even if they took side roads for part of the journey there, they couldn't have taken them all the way there. So the spot around half the journey, that would have been the same. There was simply no other way to get there. So I looked this up, and double backing like this is actually a tactic that is used to avert detection by trained tracking dogs, because it does confuse them. Where you turn around is generally seen as the end of the trail. So I'm not sure about the reporting on what the dogs found. But if this reporting is accurate, what we're hearing is that the pair made it about halfway home when they got into a vehicle and disappeared. And honestly... That is most likely what did happen based on witnesses at the store and those driving past them on the S-curve. So the dog tracking may be a side point anyway. So the prevailing theory is that someone pulled over and offered Dorothy and Danielle a ride. They would have walked about five or six miles, which is eight to nine and a half kilometers by this point. Assuming they were walking normally and not power walking, this means they would have been walking for about an hour and 45 minutes with another 45 minutes to go. It was 88 degrees out, which is 31 Celsius. 
So they're walking for hours in the sun, and maybe they would have taken a ride. We also know that Danielle was wearing heeled boots, so she may have been eager to get a ride at this point. It's debatable whether they would have taken a ride from a stranger, but they would have probably taken one from someone they knew. The police said they conducted a door-to-door knock-and-talk in the town, though when the family started reaching out to old neighbors years later, as the case grew cold, no one remembered having the police come to their door to ask them anything. So early on, the focus was on John, and then it was on Larry. Like we said, John was cleared. Larry was living out of state, but the thought was maybe Dorothy had left her husband for him, and Larry could have been hiding her and Danielle at his home. But police kept his home under surveillance for some time and saw no signs of either Dorothy or Danielle there. John and the kids left behind didn't believe Dorothy would have left her family, taking only one of her children with her. She was very close to all of her children, even the adult ones who lived back east. She periodically traveled out there to visit them and even had a trip planned for that summer to go see one of her daughters. If she could have, she would have been in contact. Eventually, the case grew cold and John took the younger children back east to be closer to the family. John had a very hard time dealing with this unbelievable loss of his wife and one of his daughters. His older kids had to step in and help care for the younger ones. And when John died in 1998, they had to take in the kids who were still minors. They themselves were young adults at the time, but they had to start raising teenagers who had been traumatized by losing both parents and a sister. I imagine that was incredibly difficult for them, but they did what they had to to take care of their family. The police followed the leads down one by one, and they continue to follow them as they come in. None of them have led to the location of Dorothy or Danielle Pitcher, though a very promising lead in 2009 made things look like there might finally be some movement in this case. It began the way a lot of these go. A cold case investigator got a hold of the file. Few police departments have a dedicated cold case unit, and many don't have any written policy or procedure for cold cases at all. Many, if not most, will not even open a cold case investigation unless new information comes in that gets the case moving again. Yet cold cases with no new information can often benefit from a new look at the old information using both modern methods and modern forensics. The clearance rate for cold cases is about one in five, which may not seem like a lot, but when you compare it to the 0% solve rate of cases that are not reopened or reviewed, it seems pretty worth it. And just ask anyone who's had a loved one go missing, or a loved one who was murdered and the case was unsolved. It's worth it to them. This case, due to the lack of evidence, may not have seemed like a likely case for being solved. There were no forensics to test and no crime scene, but there were old leads and the investigators went back over them, tracking down these people and re-interviewing them. In doing this, more leads were generated. Eventually, the cold case detective had moved far enough through that he was able to get a search warrant for a 19-acre property in a town a bit south of Sunazona. The search warrant was good for three days of searching, and it included the land, any structures or buildings on the property, and it also allowed for an excavation of the property. So this was a very broad and very comprehensive search. 
So the search warrant gives us a little clue of what the lead was that led to this specific property. So one of the things that helps with cold cases like this is a change of relationship. Basically, someone you would keep a secret for in 1993 may not be someone who will keep that same secret for you in 2009 when the police come knocking again. And that's what happened here. Someone told the police that a man had confessed that he had abducted, sexually assaulted, and then murdered the pitchers. This man was someone who had been interviewed by police back in 1993, so he had already been on the radar. The search of the property included subsurface imaging, looking for disturbed areas that may indicate a shallow grave. Now, police did not say specifically what they found on this search. They did say, though, that they collected evidence. A Tucson area media outlet, KOLD, reported shortly after the search that a source close to the investigation said that a big announcement would be coming. But it never came. This summer will be 10 years since the search. No announcement has been made about what was found. In 2017, one of the older children told news station KGUN that police are following a solid lead and she's feeling positive that they're going to get some answers from this. And another report said two suspects have been identified in this process, but their names have not been released. We don't know if they still live in the area or what their link is to the missing women, and we don't know their link, if any, to the property that was searched. The family has spent the last 25, almost 26 years doing what they can do. They went on two talk shows early on. First, they went on Jerry Springer in August of 1993 to speak with a psychic. So Jerry Springer had a number of psychics on his show over the years. It's not like Montel always had Sylvia Brown, so you knew who it was. I couldn't find the internet footage of this episode online, so I don't know who the psychic was. But from the description of what happened on the show, the psychic said Dorothy and Danielle got into a car with two men and then they were sexually assaulted and killed. This was incredibly upsetting to hear, especially so soon after the disappearance. Several months later, the family went on another talk show. But these appearances did not generate any solid leads. Family and friends made flyers. They put them up everywhere they could in the surrounding area. They walked the path from the family home to the store multiple times, looking both for insights into what may have happened, but also just raising awareness about the disappearance. They heard that there was an old van with a Colorado license plate seen in the area. But unfortunately, that lead wasn't specific enough to go anywhere. Senazona is a good eight hours from the Colorado border. Another thing the family did that I thought was pretty smart was they did annual mailings to the area. They would send these letters to individuals and businesses, but also to prisons. They were basically asking anyone with information to come forward. Aside from the vast desert and large ranches in the area, there is a national forest about an hour away called Coronado National Forest. Most of the plant life is scrub brush, not a lot of tall trees, but this scrub brush can cover the ground pretty well and certainly dense enough to cover the remains of someone. It's also a mountainous area, making it very difficult to search. But the family did go out there and they talked to people in the area 
just to see if they saw anything. They do want the police to do a search of the forest. But this forest, I mean, we're talking over one and a half million acres. Without narrowing down where to focus the search, the police would likely spend a lot of money to find nothing. The forest is a possibility, but it's only one of several remote areas in southeast Arizona where someone could have concealed bodies. I don't think it can be overstated how rural this area is. It's large, empty stretches of desert, mountains, and lowlands. If the women are there, I think they will be found on accident or possibly through a confession. It seems a search at this point is hindered by the large area to search and not enough evidence to narrow it down, especially since it seems in all likelihood they got into a vehicle. They could be very far away from where they started. Most of the family has accepted that they are gone and that they were probably killed shortly after being abducted. They would like to have them back, though, for a burial and some sort of resolution. Obviously, they want justice. Most of them know they're not looking at a happy ending. But there are family members who do hold out hope that one or both of them are alive somewhere. And we do see cases where people are held and held for a while. And perhaps that is what happened here. We don't know who the target of the abduction was. Was someone really targeting them both? Or maybe was a predator watching 14-year-old Danielle? It's possible that this person was known to them and may have been watching for some time. This is a small area where everybody knows everybody. And that's the thought that really disturbs the residents the most. Is the person responsible someone who they all know and interact with? So there's something that stood out to me in this case, and I'm not trying to connect the cases because these are unlikely to be connections. These are just coincidences with the date. Brandy Myers, whose disappearance we just covered last week, went missing almost exactly a year before Danielle. It's a difference of three days. So that stood out to me from the start. But then I realized their birth dates are also very close together. Danielle was born two days before Brandy. They both would be turning 40 in March of this year. The suspect in Brandy's case, Brian Patrick Miller, was in Arizona at the time the pictures went missing. The two murders he is supposed to stand trial for fairly soon, I hope, happened within months of Dorothy and Danielle disappearing, with one happening five months before and the other happening four months after. But all of Miller's crimes that we know of occurred in Phoenix, which is at least a three-hour drive away from Sunazona. It's unclear if he had any connections to this part of Arizona, but I don't see anything in the media of anyone attempting to connect him to the case. At the time of her disappearance, Danielle was 14 years old, 5'1", and about 112 pounds. She was dressed in a white top, white shorts, and was wearing fringed boots with a bit of a heel. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. An age progression for Danielle was released as recently as 2018 and is widely available online. Dorothy was 47 years old and would be 73 years old today. She was about 5'2 and weighed 145 pounds. She was wearing a white shorts outfit that had a duck design on it. Her hair was brown and she had brown eyes. She normally wore both eyeglasses and dentures, but both items were found at the house. Information can be provided to the sheriff's office at 520 432 9500. 